Welcome to another episode of the Journey Podcast. The Journey Podcast is all about sharing the journeys of purpose-driven individuals from all walks of life, who are following their passion and fulfilling the purpose in their own unique way. And I'm your host, Risa Kawamoto. In today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Jess Badley. Jess is actually the wife of John Allen, who was a guest in my fourth episode, and he also interviewed me in the last episode as well. Jess is a director of people and resources at the British Society for Rheumatology. And in her words, she is particularly interested in the links between well-being, flexible working, and innovation, and how this can transform an organization's culture and approach towards work. She is also a trustee for Yes Futures, a charity where they empower young people to believe in themselves and discover their personal potential. And she also acts as mentor on the Chartered Institute of Personal and Development Mentoring Scheme. Jess is my go-to person for any HR and leadership-related questions I have because I really love her approach to people management and creating a positive, effective, inclusive workplaces. In our conversation, you'll hear how she developed her career to where she is now and how she navigated some of the challenges as she stepped into a leadership role. She also shares her tips and advice for inclusive recruitment and working cultures, as well as advice for people wanting to completely change their career. She has a lot of wisdom to share and I'm sure you'll learn a lot from our conversations. Hi Jess, welcome to the Journey Podcast. I am so excited to have you here today um, for you to share your inspiring journey with our listeners. So yeah, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad it's nearly the weekend, but I've had a good week, so all good with me. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, this podcast episode will probably go out around February, March time in a new year in 2023 but yeah we are actually recording this just before Christmas so yeah I am really excited to have some time off during Christmas and the new year <laughs> I'm sure you had to um so also like I would love for you to share like where you are joining from today yeah sure so I'm joining from uh, Leon C which is near South End I'm always jealous and envious I guess that you are near the sea I guess I grew up near the sea in Japan so I always love the sea and swimming in the sea so I'm always envious when people tell me they live near the sea <laughs> I told your husband John Allen about this <laughs> as well um, so I would love for you to share a little bit about your background and anything you'd like to share about growing up in your early years yeah, sure. So I grew up in the East Midlands um, in a in a really tiny place called Rutland, uh, which is, uh, if you know it, you've probably been cycled around Rutland Water. Uh, that's pretty much the only thing there is to do there. Uh, so when we were growing up, we spent the whole time just planning how quickly we could move away from the area because <laughs> it's um, it's very pretty. It's lovely if you like walking and all those sorts of things. But obviously, when you're when you're growing up, that is the last thing you care about. So <laughs> it was a very lovely childhood because we you know, it was a very safe place, uh, lovely outside space. It's it's quite rural. Um, but yeah, we uh, we did spend our whole time planning how we were going to get out of Rutland and go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, when you say we, is that you and your friends? Yeah. So, um, yeah, quite a big group of friends that I've had from kind of, well, nursery school, really, uh, that we're all still in touch with, which is lovely. Um, and actually, a few of them still live around that area. So they <laughs> they uh, they went away to university, but then but then came back. So, but the, yeah, there's still quite a few of us in, in touch, which is is nice that we've stayed friends for quite a lot of years now. <laughs> so what, what sort of thing that you are planning to get out of where you live? 
was there any strategic plan <laughs> involved <laughs> i mean that no there absolutely wasn't um i think all of like me and my group of friends all wanted to go to university we knew that um and so i went off to durham which is quite a long way from rutland so it did a good job getting further away from there um yeah and then and then from there i just really moved around based on jobs. So I've lived in lots of different parts of the country. Uh, I lived in Portsmouth for a bit, lived in Reading for a bit, uh, also up in Newcastle, and then in London for a long time as well. And then finally, we've landed here by the sea, which is lovely. <laughs> so when you were growing up, did you have any passion or any anything that you were so interested in like doing, anything you enjoyed doing? Yeah, lots of things, actually. So my mum always says that when I was a child, I was one of those children that wanted to join everything. So if there was a, if there was a club at school, if there was a, a trip somewhere, I'd always be one of the, the kids that was like, yes, I want to go and do that. She'd be like, OK, <laughs> like, <laughs> you're out every night after school, but fine. Um, yeah, so I really liked doing a lot of sports when I was at school. So um, love playing netball, love doing trampolining. They were probably my favourites. Um, but I, yeah, I was also just quite interested in in seeing things. Um, and I've always really been interested in kind of English and history, I guess, as subjects at school. They were probably my favourites, I would say. Did you have anyone like you admired or anyone that like really taught you something that you felt really inspired or anywhere really like at school or yeah? Um, so I would say probably not with with sports. I think I think it was only later that that I kind of got more interested in other you know professional sports players. But um, yeah, they, that's never really been where I've got inspiration from. I guess um, like I love watching the England netball team play now, but I'd I'd struggle to name any players. I would say um, so. Yeah, I th I think probably my inspiration when I was growing up. Uh, definitely came from my parents um, and how they brought me and my brother up. So uh, they, yeah, they both worked. So we always had a, I think, a really great example around that, which was which was great. Um, but yeah, we always a, a, still are a, a close family as well. So could always talk to them, could always go for advice and know that it would be, you know, honest advice. Um, mm -hmm. Not not mean, but <laughs> you know, if it was like. Even even kind of decisions at school, so like, you know, which subjects to do at GCSE or A-level, knowing that you could always go and talk to them about it and they'd give an opinion, but also they would still let us make those decisions for ourselves as well. So what did you study, whether your A-levels or degrees at university? So for A-levels, um, I did... Uh, so we were, I think we were the first year that where there was AS levels were introduced, mm -hmm. which are now not a thing anymore because it's all changed again since then. So it meant that we uh, we ended up doing like one year of a topic that we then didn't carry on. So I did French for the first year mm -hmm. and then dropped that because it was just much harder than any of the other subjects I was doing, because obviously it's in a different language. Uh, and while I would love to say I'm really good at other languages, I'm really just a bit lazy with the learning of them. So I'd love to be good at them. But just, you know, knowing yourself, <laughs> I am a bit lazy when it comes to that especially like, you know, learning verb tables, things like that. Uh, but the subjects I really loved, um, so I did history, um, which I then went on to do at university. Um, but at A-level, I also did uh, law, uh, politics and geography. Oh, wow. OK, I didn't know that <laughs> at all. Well, I didn't know what you studied at university at all. Um, so how was your university life like? So you um, left your home uh town is it is it town or is it it is a town is yes a town. okay <laughs> and I, I i i guess it's your first time moving away from your parents and living um in your own kind of place where you live in a campus or where you rent in a room in a student house what was it like yeah it was great actually and i i really loved it so in the first year uh, they at Durham they have kind of halls of residence so that's quite nice because it's they're all spread around the city um, and so you meet people very easily like on your first day your first week it's it's just so easy to make friends mm -hmm. so you've got kind of a group of friends who where you live but also you've then got friends on your course as well 
so so that was lovely and then in the second year then we moved out and, and kind of rented accommodation as well so I really enjoyed that I loved the freedom of being able to do what I wanted um, and like I said I did history and I loved the course um, I thought it was yeah it was just really interesting um, and obviously the autonomy that you have if you do something like usually an art subject at uni is you don't have very much contact time as mm. in that kind of teaching a lot of it is you just go off and and do your own research do your own reading and that really suits me um, I much prefer to to study like that and have kind of carried that approach on when I've done any studying in past uni as well. Mm, yes and uh, did you know what you wanted to um, be in terms of like your profession and the job like the types of job that you wanted when you graduate university? No not <laughs> at all I had so little idea <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm also a real planner so uh, it's unusual for me not to have I guess a goal for the next well it depends could be anywhere from like the next six months to the next five years and definitely when I was at university it was kind of drilled into us that in your third year you need to start thinking about what job you're going to get uh, which was really helpful so I think I just thought well I'll I'll try and just get onto a graduate scheme because they're quite generic um and, and that is what I did. So I, I went to work for a company called Explore Learning and they essentially you go in as a manager and they train you in all aspects of running a business. Mm-hmm. And it's working with children and young people, which I already knew that I liked doing. So I'd done that quite a lot at university. And so, yeah, I kind of ended up doing that, <laughs> I guess, um, which I did. I did really enjoy. It gave me a great grounding for my career since then. Um, but I think if at university you'd said to me in 10 years time, you'll end up being a HR professional, I would not have believed you. I would have said that's not my skill set. I'm not interested in that. Mm. Um, who would who would work in HR? That sounds like a rubbish career. <laughs> but I guess so you, you said so it was so you it was it like a program that you join and they train you as a manager and teach you how to build a business for yourself or was it for like running business for other organizations so essentially they teach you how to run their kind of tuition centers Mm. so everything from kind of you know how to um, market it in the local community how to manage a team how to put a budget together and how to you know manager rota because we had um, a lot of staff that came in to work with the children um, and the evenings and weekends so there was really lots of different aspects that are just useful for any management career mm. really and they they had quite a structured program around how they did that and they um, at the time were aimed at people coming straight out of uni so they kind of had a very very slick program really around how to develop people what they wanted you to get out of it at each stage so it, it, mm-hmm. it was quite um quite structured which was helpful for me at the time yeah that sounds like a really great um yeah way to get into your career I guess or yeah because yeah I, I would have probably enjoyed that <laughs> in my early 20s just to get understanding of how you run a management or a business it's really interesting to learn that from the beginning you know from the, from the early stage of your career <laughs> um so you said um you were doing a bit of work around working with young people children and young people when you were at university what sort of work did you do so the university were doing a lot of outreach around the local community because around Durham and Newcastle there's some communities which are really deprived economically um, there is a really high proportion of uh, children and young people who if they wanted to go on to further education it would be if they'd be the first generation of, of their family to do that and the university were really trying to encourage social mobility and so they put on lots of kind of taster days or uh, summer schools, summer camps where those students would would come and basically experience what it's like to be at university mm. so some of that was 
just talking to the students about what it's like doing them um, like we'd go to a few lectures things like that but quite a lot of it was trying to build their confidence up as well so especially where we had like the the summer schools things like that they might be with us for a couple of weeks so we were doing much more around that self-belief and mm. you know them understanding that just because they don't know anyone that's been to university they're still going to be absolutely able to get there if that's what they want to do so yeah I really enjoyed that okay that sounds really interesting and that's really helpful for yeah young people who are thinking of going to university or what is it like to be at university I didn't know that sort of thing existed actually (laughs) yeah and I think it's good because and and equally not everyone wants to go to university Mm. so we had some students that came along thinking they did want to do that but then we would say well there's other there's other routes to get to the career that you might want Mm. and so actually if if it means that they then maybe go and do an apprenticeship or whatever they choose to do then you know I think that's helpful as well in terms of them and getting them on the the path that's right for them yeah and did uh did people give that guidance as well so like this is uh if you are not sure about university routes then there's also alternative route for you so did they give guidance around that as well yeah and I think because their teachers at school were also you know really good at doing that because they Mm. would know their students so well so they can make more tailored suggestions but yeah I think it, it it very often came up like I said when we did the the longer periods with the students and they would say you know, I'm enjoying this week, but actually it's made me think I I don't like chemistry that much anymore. Or actually what you said about, you know, working in this way isn't going to be for me. Actually, I would rather go into work quicker. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think we just were tried to be as open as we could in conversations with people. So, yeah, because I think, of course, we wanted to encourage anyone who wanted to to go to university. But equally, the last thing we would want to do is is say to someone like you must go it's the only route you know if you want to have a good job because we know that's not true mm. yes but yeah I, I do feel like the society kind of does kind of encourage people to get higher education university degree and that's the way that you get a good job you know your first job and then build your career um yeah so it's, it's interesting to know that <laughs> that university is uh you know doing that sort of thing um so do you think that working with children and young people at university and also in your first job impacted like where like you choose your career in future um yeah I think it probably did I think I've always enjoyed working with children and young people but equally, I've never wanted to just do that. So I don't think I'd be a great teacher, for example. But I, I do like uh, kind of the learning and development side of my job. So if I'm working with adults, for example, I really like doing kind of development sessions with them or coaching and mentoring. So I think probably the the main things I got from from that job and my first job was around, I think, transferring those skills into yeah into another role really yeah okay yeah and how did you then kind of progress your career from there to where you are now <laughs> yeah so I mean it, I, I always think it's a, a bit of a wiggly line it's not it's not very obvious as a career path so once I uh, left Explore Learning I went and ran a, uh, a children's nursery in London oh and wow. um, and that was um that was it was such such a steep learning curve, but in a in a good way. So yeah, so I was running the nursery, reporting directly to the trustees, and just because of where it was in London, uh, we had eighty children on on the roll on the, on the register, uh, and we had I think fifty one different languages that those children could speak. So it was brilliant because we could do so much around being inclusive and the children learning from each other's cultures, which was really great. But also in terms of then their parents couldn't all speak English Mm. and trying to translate a nursery policy through a four year old is really quite tricky. So uh, learning about how you communicate with in different ways with different people, um, that was really valuable, I think. And. I also think the working in early years as a sector 
you have staff who are really, really committed and who are great at working with these children and making sure that they are developing. And it's it's all based around following the children's interests, which is really great and is absolutely the right thing to do. But the sector really struggles because it's really underfunded by the government. It means parents have to pay extortionate nursery fees. And even then, it is incredibly hard to even make the books balance in any sort of nursery sector. And we were standalone. We weren't part of a chain. So there was no backup from anywhere. And so I got really good really quickly at budgeting, um, <laughs> at, at fundraising which yeah. I'd never done before. I didn't know how to write a bid for a trust to to ask for money. So had to get good at that very quickly because otherwise we were going to go bankrupt and everyone would lose their job. So yes, and then loads around running a business there that yes. I hope I, I won't need to get to that stage ever again. Did you enjoy that writing bids and fundraising, running business? Yeah, so I did. I think I enjoyed it in my next few jobs where it was less stressful, um, <laughs> where it was less kind of like, if I don't get one of these bids landed, I don't know how I'm going to pay people next month. Uh, it's much more enjoyable when you're not at that stage. Mm. And I think what I realised is I much preferred it when I could go and talk to the funders directly. Mm. So it depends if when you're fundraising. So sometimes you write bids and you send them off, someone reads them and, and it's all done in a written format. But some funders, some some trusts, some grant making foundations will ask you to go and present to them. And I always found that easier, had a much higher success rate doing it that way. And I think for me, that's that's carried on because I still really like doing things like public speaking. So, you know, I've done a few conferences, speaking events over the past few years. So, yeah, it definitely taught me that I enjoyed that part of it. Mm, okay oh wow yes yeah I, I know yeah the fact that you are really good at public speaking and you also enjoy it as well and yeah so that's where you got it from so were you ever nervous or like got anxious when you know that you know next day you got to pitch yeah and I think especially the first few times um yeah really anxious would practice it loads uh, and and I think especially, yeah, when I first started, I thought that I kind of had to just be able to remember it all and that it had to be perfect. But then actually I realised that, uh, no, it's fine. And the more natural you come across, the more likely you are to build that rapport with someone who might give you the money anyway. Because especially if it's someone you haven't met before and you're not going to meet again, probably, mm you know, the, the more natural you come across, the easier it is normally for people to to trust you or believe what you're saying. So I think it's like, I think everyone gets nervous to some extent when you're speaking, no matter how many times you've done it. Mm. I think you probably get better at hiding that. Um, yeah, but yeah, I was definitely, well, the first few times I did it, really nervous um, and wouldn't tell anyone I was doing it so like my you know the senior team where I was working I would they would know obviously I was going off to do a presentation because they need to know where I was but I, I wouldn't have told anyone else until afterwards um yeah just because it, you know sometimes people are like oh are you, are you nervous about it <laughs> and you're like well if I wasn't before now I am because you reminded me thanks very much <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point yes and a good point around like you get better at hiding how <laughs> nervous you are, I guess. More, more you do, I'm sure you build that confidence, um, but I guess you also get better at hiding and kind of put the kind of presentation mask on and just go and do it, isn't it? Um, so were you successful with fundraising? Yeah, we did. So, so I had a target that I had to reach, like I said, for us to stay existing um mm -hmm. as an earlier setting so yeah and, and we did hit that and actually then when I left that business I got, got another job in a in a children's center uh, as their operations director and when I left um that organization it was still standing and it's still going today <laughs> so <laughs> amazing that's good that's great to know isn't it <laughs> to know that you've done the work <laughs> <laughs> yes, didn't leave them in the lurch. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay. Um, wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I did not know about that at all. So <laughs> so interesting to hear about it. Um, so from there, how did you get into HR? So my next job after that, then, as I said, I went and uh, became an ops director uh, mm -hmm. for a children's centre. So that was a slightly bigger business. There was uh, three nursery sites. Um, so, yeah, probably we had about 80 staff altogether. So a little bit bigger uh, than the standalone nursery. But my role there was, um, well, same sort of things in there, um, but just on a bigger scale, I guess. And that's where really... I was able to spend a bit more time on the HR side of it because I, I I had a bigger team as well to support me. So I wasn't having to do as much by myself. So uh, the finance side of it, obviously, as an ops director, you, you're still overseeing that, you're still overseeing all the building bits, like when things break or getting rent from people. Um, <laughs> but that really as well was the first time that I realised that the HR side of it was the bit I really enjoyed. Um, I do like the finance side of it. Um, it's it can be really satisfying when you make something work or when you um, or equally when you support someone else to understand how to do their budget for the first time. Uh, the building bit, like I've had it in lots of jobs, it's been one of my responsibilities. It's, it's never going to be something that I love doing, managing buildings, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it often does fall into an ops remit. So, you know, I've done it a lot. That's fine. Mm -hmm. I can do health and safety, but it's, <laughs> it's not a passion. But um, yeah, the HR side of it really was like trying to support the staff to develop, making sure they had uh, a lot of support, because while working in, like I said, in the earlier sector is really rewarding, it's also really challenging. And so making sure that those staff are as supported as possible. That's mm. when I first thought, actually, maybe I want to start to specialise into a HR path now. Mm. And I feel like that almost kind of kind of connected to what you were doing at university to those young people, isn't it? Like, and I guess HR is more people focused, um, whereas I guess building, you also need to deal with people, I'm sure, but it's more of a, yeah building <laughs> yeah, yeah. So something's broken again let's fix it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so while you were kind of in so while you were in that role um did you have any mentors or anyone any coaches or anyone that supported you through that um transition into HR or through that career path that you wanted to pursue so no I didn't actually I really wish that I had um because that would have been really helpful um <laughs> so what I decided to do was to uh go and do a HR qualification so there's the CIPD which is HR professional body in the UK so I decided to go and do the level seven qualification and just do that while I was working so that that was helpful i mean you get kind of obviously uh, lectures on the course um the, there was i think you could access like one of the i guess more the pastoral side if you needed support but there wasn't really mentoring within that um and it wasn't until i moved to my next role which was a hr role that i then accessed a mentor cipd do a lot of uh, mm. mentoring schemes so that was probably the first time then that i'd access someone like that um, and that was really useful for me I think both in terms of thinking ahead of what a HR career could look like but also because he was way more experienced in HR and so if I had like a, a HR issue I, I was just having that sounding board to talk mm. it through which was really helpful. Yes, and I'm sure being in HR department there are loads of loads of issues. <laughs> And it can be quite emotionally draining as well because you're dealing and supporting your employees and people. And yeah, so I'm sure having a mentor really helped you with that as well. Um, so from there, I, I know that you always enjoyed working in charity sector, if I'm correct. Yes. <laughs> How did you... Did you like? Were you always interested in that charity sector or voluntary sector um, when you were 
younger or is this something that kind of you discovered in your early career? Yeah, I think it was probably early career stages. So I always did a lot of volunteering work like at school and at, and at uni, but I hadn't really thought, you know, oh, definitely the charity sector is where I want to go. And I think that was probably because I was aware then that the pay does tend to be lower than if you work in the in the private sector and the benefits are lower than if you work in the public sector. So I think it, it was never kind of my aim. And the first role I worked in was that was private sector. Um, yeah, and I think it was only then when I moved into early years. So that I mean, that early years can be across all three sectors. But the first nursery that I ran was a charity. Um, and I suppose, yeah, being in that and then realising that actually if you work in a charity, it's really quite easy often to make sure that your staff really buy into what you want to do as a team, as an organisation. So having that link to your organisation's mission mm. is so much easier in a charity organisation. And, and I think a lot of people are attracted to the charity sector for that reason. So mm. you do end up working with really passionate people who really want to make a change, make an impact. And that definitely is motivating for me. Um, so was it was it easy to go from charity sector to private sector, private sector, then back to charity sector? I feel like quite a lot of people including myself, I always wanted to work in charity sector or public sector when I was in the private sector. (laughs) So like from your experience, like how easy has it been for you to kind of switch, you know, different sectors in your career? Yeah, so I think I've actually found it relatively easy. Um, And also because even within the charity sector obviously that's huge and there's lots of different types of charities and some people like to you know stay in in one part of it where I tried to move around a little bit and I think really it comes down to if you're trying to apply for a role I think it's making sure that you've addressed that in your cover letter if if you're mm-hmm. asked for one so it's really obvious for whoever is reading your CV and cover letter one that you want to move but also why and then having a really strong answer at interview because usually people will ask that um, but, I, th- you know, I think it's it's usually a genuine interest because a lot of people do change sectors now. So mm-hmm. more and more people can sort of imagine why you might want to do it. So I think so long as you have got a clear idea of what that is and you can articulate that, that it's definitely possible. Yeah. Yes. And from your experience, like when you are in the charity sector, did you have many people applying for roles in your organisation where their experience is not in charity sector or public sector but from like completely different (laughs) area you know did you have many applications from those people? So I would say more over the past few years Mm. but I also think that's because wherever I've worked as well um, we've made a point of saying it doesn't matter which sector you're from because Mm -hmm quite often in job descriptions and it really annoys me but you know people can do what they want but <laughs> often it will say you know as as a desirable part of the person specification uh it would be great if you've worked in a similar sort of organization before and that really annoys me because i just think it's rubbish <laughs> because <laughs> you can learn knowledge in a new sector anybody can do that really quickly i think it's the the skills that you'll bring in the behaviors how you act and your values that's what's going to say whether or not you're good at the job you that mm. you know that you're applying for and um, but equally i think because people often do think oh well if it says on the job description they want someone from this sector that i'm not even going to get an interview i won't bother applying and then you miss this massive section of people that would bring in a new viewpoint into your organization so now on yeah like i said anywhere i work our recruitment policy is that we don't ask for people in the same sector and we would try and explicitly say it doesn't matter if you haven't worked in this sector before if you've got this if you've got these skills or if we're asking for experience then please apply anyway and if you I found if you put that explicitly in then people you know take you at face value so you get that whole range of of really great applicants coming through 
Yes, I completely agree. And yeah, I, I would love for you to have enough HR department <laughs> where I work. Um, <laughs> and create all these new policies for us. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> so I would love to hear from Leo. I Now you are a director of people and operations, I believe. Did I uh, get that? People and resources. But people. yeah, it is. Okay. It's basically operations, yeah. So I, I would love to know how you got into leadership role and were there any challenges as you were building your career and trying to get into more of a leadership role? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the probably the first leadership roles I had um, were back in kind of the earlier sector. Um, so then I would, so that meant in a charity often means you're working with a board of directors uh, who are usually called trustees. Um, so yeah, so I've done that now for the past sort of five or six roles. Um, and I think it's it's really interesting because it means you get a much broader view across the whole organisation rather than just your area, which is often mm -hmm. why a lot of people want to move to that level. And I think it was quite challenging the first time. Um, and I think like, I guess recruitment practices have changed over that time because we're going back a few years. But I think um, some of the challenges I faced were people, uh, well, I say assuming, but I did have in one interview a question that someone asked me was, well, why do you think you can do this job? Because you're much younger than anyone else that works here. So why do you think they would listen to you? Um, which, you know, now I hope no one would ask. <laughs> but <laughs> he was deadly serious in that he didn't think I could uh, be a leader because I was younger than the people I would be managing. Um, and I thought I gave a very good answer to that, but he clearly was never going to hire me for that role anyway. So <laughs> I didn't get that role. But I did come across that a couple of times with the recruiters as well, where they had said, you know, um, yeah, you, your CV is really great. And I think you did a really good interview with me. But I know the client is looking for someone who's more experienced. And I'm like, well, I can't get that apart from just by carrying on living, basically, because mm -hmm. like, I can't change my age. Yes. So if if you are just basically saying, well, you can only be a director once you're over the age of 40. That's that's not a great way to do it, I think. No. So that was definitely definitely a challenge um, that I found uh, early on. Um, but not not everywhere is like that. And then when I moved into HR roles, I, I kind of had to go sideways to get into HR as a career. But that worked that worked really well for me because like I said I was studying at the same time and trying to work full time and study is is quite a lot. So uh, that sideways move worked really nicely for me. And then in that organisation, I had the opportunity to step up into the leadership team uh, from there after when I've been there about uh, eight months or so. So, yeah, I was really lucky that we had an organisation that that believed in me and we had the opportunity to step up into the leadership team there. Would you be able to share like what was your answer to this person in the interview when he said, <laughs> um, yeah, when he kind of, yeah, asked that question around your age? Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> so it was about like five seconds where I was thinking, did he say that out loud? <laughs> um, and, and then I'd said, you know, no, I, I don't think that would be an issue at all. Um, because a team doesn't follow a leader based on how old they are uh they they follow them based on how good a leader they are so if i haven't managed to bring them along with me of, of you know if it's a change i'm making or if it's a new mission that we're setting that's got nothing to do with how old i am that's how good i am at building relationships it's my leadership style it's understanding the organization and how the team works and you can do that at any age. You can have really great young leaders. You can have people in their 50s and 60s who are still terrible leaders. So really, it is about the skills and how you behave and how you role model um, far more than, you know, how many director job titles you might have had over the past 15 years or so. I love that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> Sorry, I had to ask that question. <laughs> it's fine. He didn't love it. He was just like, hmm. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm sure like, he didn't love it. I yet. don't think I want this job anyway. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned age um, being one of the challenges um, when you were stepping up into leadership role. Did you have any challenges um, being a woman and wanting to step up as a leadership role as well? Um, so sometimes, yeah, and I think it and it comes out in in different ways. And I think I've never had an experience where someone has directly discriminated against me for that but I think what I found sometimes is you might be in a in a boardroom um in a meeting and it's the I guess it's the microaggressions that that come in so for example um if you're in a meeting and you, you sometimes I might have been the only female there um mm. but I'd be the only person sometimes that maybe someone would interrupt halfway through a sentence uh, so I'd be the only person having to say I need you to wait until I've finished this point. Uh, you've just asked me a question and I'm answering it. Let, please let me get to the end and then you can clarify. And it's like initially, I suppose I didn't really notice it. But the more it happens, the more you think, well, I, I am the only person getting interrupted. Mm. Um, or or even even stuff like, well, I think probably probably most women I know being expected, that you'd be the one that go and make the tea. Um, mm. It's like come on <laughs> like yes. I'm pretty sure you can all use a kettle if you want a <laughs> cup of tea go and make it <laughs> yeah so I think definitely found more of that um and on occasion um I suppose it's felt to me that I've had to work harder to get an idea accepted um by, by a board or or by a leadership team um but it's quite hard to quantify that isn't it because Sometimes it might have been that I just didn't articulate it very well. And so actually it took me a bit longer because I should have changed approach or should have changed tactics. But sometimes I don't think it's that <laughs> at all. Mm. And I think um, in HR, there's quite a lot of discussions that go on around how much influence HR has in a business and how important they are seen as. So I think that plays into it too. But a lot of HR professionals, like the majority of us, are female, apart from directors who in mm. the HR profession tend to be male. Uh, so there's that gender bias kind of all the way through, really. Mm. Yes, that's so interesting, like what you said about HR department. I, yeah, I, I do notice that tend to be female, more female dominated. But then when you look at director level, they're all male, tend to be male. So yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I have a couple of questions kind of that I'm really curious to hear from you. Sure. So um, in your opinion, what are the different leadership qualities that make effective, inclusive leaders? That's a really good question. I feel like I've written essays about this as part of my, <laughs> <laughs> my qualifications. Um, so. So I think there's a couple of key things, really. I think one is trying to have as good an understanding of yourself as you can, because obviously none of us is perfect as much as we might like to think that we're amazing. So <laughs> and I think it's just understanding what things you're less good at so that, for example, you can make sure that your team have those strengths around you or you're working with your peer group to you know even it out a little bit I guess um and I think around yeah like you're saying around being inclusive I think some of that is often just challenging how you might work so to be able to do that I think obviously you've got to try and create a setting for all of your team where they can feed back to you if something's not right so that they have this really high level of psychological safety and that is quite hard for people to do because obviously you don't really want to be criticizing your boss that's quite a difficult thing for a lot of people especially if they might be new to a role or they might be new in their career that that confidence and feeling safe enough to say actually you might have messed this up or I just don't like how we're working together 
I think I think that is hard, but I also think it's really important. And it's usually how you learn best as a leader when someone feeds back to you and says this wasn't great. Um, so I think that's really important to do. And obviously it takes time. You've got to build trust. And then when someone does give you that feedback, you have to react in a good way. So mm. if you can't be annoyed with someone for giving you feedback when you've asked for it, even if you don't agree with it. So I think that to me is is really important and to and to keep doing it as well, because I, when I'm new into a role, I would do that automatically and try and you know build those with my team. I think once you've been in a role a few months or a few years, it can be quite easy to forget to keep doing that and keep checking back again because ways work and change all the time and what individuals need from you as a manager or a leader change all the time as well mm. and from your experience how did you kind of create that working culture of so that your team can trust you and feel comfortable speaking up and you know hey, yes, you done this and I don't really agree with it. To be able for your team to do that, you need to create sort of working culture, I believe. And how did you create that? So I think one of the things that I think usually works quite well is when I'm first meeting a new team and meeting individuals is to try and create a space to do that and to explicitly talk about it. Mm. So and there's different there's different templates, tools available generally I would just when I had the first kind of one-to-one with someone I would say you know what's your working preferences like how do you prefer to be managed how do you prefer to get feedback how often do you want us to catch up Um, and just try and set those I guess those expectations but also try and really understand how that person likes to work because it could be as simple as actually they prefer to kind of get any I don't know instructions or tasks via email but some people hate that they would just much prefer Mm. to get that in a in a one-to-one once a week so even just understanding something like that and then doing how that person prefers it I think that sets a a good tone for the management relationship and I think within a team as well like at team meetings just always trying to have space and deliberately inviting feedback or thoughts and trying to have different channels for people because some people are confident enough to say oh but what about this or we could do it this way and they'll do that in a meeting whereas other people aren't going to do that so they might prefer just to be able to put comments on a document or just to email me separately mm. so I think just trying to yeah just be really clear that 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 is a behavior that I value and that I expect from people and that and like I said, then when you first get that feedback, when someone is brave enough to put their head up and say, mm. actually, I don't think we should be focusing on that next month. I think we should do this. Um, that that they can see then my reaction to that is going to be like, OK, that's a good point. Let's talk about it some more. Um, and then following up on it. So, yeah, if we're going to change it, great. If you change something, people can see that you'll take the feedback on board. Or if you're not, then explaining why not so that it isn't just a sure give me all the feedback you want I don't care but you can give me the feedback because that's obviously (laughs) really unhelpful yes yeah thank you so much for sharing that I think it's like really helpful for everyone to hear that (laughs) um so if you could uh, become a CEO of the organization or a founder of the of your own organization what sort of organization would you create Oh, that's a really good question. So so I guess I could tell you from like what I would like it to be like for people that worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I would want to create an organisation where uh, it was it was very flexible for people in terms of working hours and, and things like that. Um, I'm really interested in the move towards uh, working less hours. So, you know, the four day week, etc. Mm-hmm. We're um, we're actually starting a trial where I work now from January. We're um, we're going to trial doing a four and a half day week. So I'm really excited about that. But I think, yeah, an organisation I was creating, I would quite like it to be a, a relatively flat structure. So not too many lines of of management, mm. um, you know, anywhere it's useful. And that it was somewhere where people really felt like they could do their best work and that they've got autonomy to do that. 
and then obviously if you're doing that you, you're getting quite a lot of development along the way as well I love that <laughs> I'm sure many people will want to work for your organization <laughs> <laughs> okay so I have uh, two more questions so do you have any advice to those who want to change their career path completely yeah so I think probably I would say to try and break it down into what feels like manageable steps because if you're going to change career completely lots of people do that um and it's I think yeah it's about working out the the easiest way to do it but I guess also the safest way because for a lot of people that means potentially a change in salary mm-hmm. um and, and that's obviously usually a barrier for people so um I guess it's thinking about if you do need to get a qualification you know other ways you could get funding through that for example or if it's nothing to do with the qualification and you just want to change sectors then I think it's about what I was saying earlier around really being able to articulate why you want to move so that any any recruiter you might come across um, any organization that you can explain to them you know really in for example could could you explain it in two minutes why you want to do that and what are your transferable skills and I think mapping those out um, is really helpful because then it does make you see how much of those skills you've got and how much of your experience would be really useful in another sector. Mm. Yes, yes. Great advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. I actually got two more, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what's the best advice you have ever received in your life? Oh, I think I think probably it was to quit a job and get another one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So one of my roles, it was quite a toxic culture, I would say, like, some people enjoyed working there most people probably didn't um and we we were struggling to change it so I at that point wasn't on a leadership team um I couldn't I couldn't really influence any change and I I was kind of already aware that you know it wasn't there's was nothing about that job that was exciting me and that's normally my cue to to find another role like a, you know I can't see the impact I'm making doesn't feel like I'm having a positive impact that means it's time for me to move on but that was I was still quite early on in my career and so I was a bit like "Mm, I've only been in this job for a little while maybe it looked like I'm hopping around maybe I should just stick it out for a bit maybe this is just what most jobs are like and I was in a meeting and there was an external person there and uh, the the meeting was quite a a stormy meeting It, it wasn't going well uh, people sort of arguing um, and this was an external person there so not great not not mm. that not very professional environment and the next day um, the external person she called me um, to follow up on the meeting but also at the end of the call she'd said you know just um, obviously it's none of my business but I just want to say I thought you'd handled yourself really well in that meeting um, and you know maybe you should just think about where else you could have an impact instead um mm. and that really surprised me one that she'd said it and it was it was really nice for her to say it because she was doing it from a supportive point of view um and I was so embarrassed because that meeting had been so awful but yeah so when she'd said like just just go somewhere else like find somewhere better uh, and she was absolutely right and then when I thought about it I thought yeah like why am I staying here I just I don't enjoy this job anymore um and I you know I was lucky enough to be able to just quit and go and find another job so that was probably the best advice I ever had. Mm, Wow that's very nice of her to tell you that that you know to to tell you that you've you, you've done a great job in that meeting you handled it well but also like I'm sure there's some way else where you can make bigger impact than you know in this current job wow that's <laughs> that's a great um advice well wow, thank you so much for sharing that that's quite inspiring to hear <laughs> that there's people out there who are willing to you know just call up and give that advice to someone what was was this person the first is it the first time you met this person or did you know this person 
Yeah, so so she'd been supporting her organisation doing a piece of work for probably a couple of months before that. And then that meeting was the last time she was going to be involved with us. Oh, OK. Um, yeah, so I think it was probably just seeing how the organisation was working. Mm. Um, and we'd obviously had a, a good working relationship. So I, th- I think it was, you know, from like almost like that mentor point of view, she mm-hmm. again was was quite a bit older than me. Um, and I think, yeah, <laughs> maybe she'd had a similar experience and she thought, I wish someone had told me, like, mm. stop worrying about the what ifs and just go and find something better. Yes, yes, that's a great point you made there that I'm sure she probably had a similar experience and it's it's usually like, oh, I wish someone had told me this and you just feel like, oh, you just need to tell that person (laughs) what I wish I had, you know, when when I was younger. So, yeah, that's a great point. Um, So final question, Um, what advice would you give to those who are trying to follow their passion? but feeling challenged to do so or struggling to do so? Because I know you support your husband with his writing, you know, since you guys met. And I I know that you do this kind of very amazingly. And I know that your husband really appreciate that. So, yeah, I would love to hear if you could advise to those who are doing similar thing. What would you say to them? Yeah, so, so... I think actually having an external viewpoint can be really helpful. And I think we we talked about sort of coaches and mentors earlier. And I do think that can be so helpful because it just there's someone else who's, you know, who who doesn't have any bias towards you. They don't have any vested interest. Um, They are just there in that role to support you and to help you with whatever you want to do. So I think just having that external voice can be really helpful um, and there's obviously they can a mentor or coach could come from anywhere there's lots of, of different places um, so I do quite a lot of mentoring through the CIPD so it's all kind of volunteer programs etc uh, and I tend to try and support people who are right at the start of their HR careers um, and and where they're trying to build their passion for their career but yeah I do think having that external voice is helpful because they're not just going to say to you it's all brilliant you're doing fine like you you might be but <laughs> equally it's quite hard if you, sometimes if you're you know trying to change something in your life so mm-hmm. having someone that will be positive but also will push you a little bit as well to especially if it's stepping out of your comfort zone I think that's helpful um and it you know it doesn't it doesn't have to cost anything or or it can do you can obviously pay for coaches as well but I do think having that external voice can really just help you. Um, maybe it's the autonomy of it, because obviously friends and family are really helpful for that. But of, of course, they, they're coming at it from a different viewpoint. So that more neutral sounding board, I think, can be really helpful. Mm, yes, such a great advice. Um, just follow up on that. What would you say to those who are kind of struggling to find coaches or mentors or the the right coaches or right mentors um yeah because from my experience I struggle finding the right coaches and mentors for me so (laughs) what would you say to those people yeah and there is so many possibilities out there isn't there so I think if it's a profession quite a lot of membership bodies offer things like mentoring or coaching opportunities um so I think they're always a good place to start. But equally, depending on what you want to do, sometimes there is a, a membership body for that or they might be really small. They might not be able to offer that. So then I think you're probably looking a bit wider. Um, and I think if you are then, I guess, almost Google searching for coaches and, and mentors, um, then I think there's probably a few things to think about, uh, one of which is kind of, you know, what what that person does because there's some absolutely amazing coaches and mentors and then there's other people who just won't suit you and that's fine so I think it is about trying to find the chemistry and and the right person and and their approach because again coaches are really different in in how they Mm -hmm. do that so finding the right match for you um I think most people would be really happy to have you know an initial chat with you and see if if that chemistry is right or not and if it's not then it's nothing personal on either side so I think yeah just just spending a bit of time 
chatting to people or getting recommendations as well. So if you're in any sort of professional network, so like maybe LinkedIn or or on any other sort of social media platform, asking for recommendations, mm-hmm. I think is helpful. Because um, other people, if they've had a great experience, will always share that. So that's helpful, I think. So you're not going in thinking there's like 100 people I could pick from here. I don't know where to start. Yes, yes. Yeah, there are so many out there these days. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for your time and this amazing conversation. <laughs> if people want to get in touch with you, where can people find you? LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Um, yeah, Jessica Badley, uh, you'll find me quite easily on there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you. And yeah, take care. Have a good Friday afternoon and weekend. You Thank too. You. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Jess. I definitely learned a lot and I really love her approach to recruitment and creating a safe space for people to speak up and provide feedback. I will definitely be sharing this with my colleagues at work. I hope you have a wonderful day and I'll see you in the next episode.